0: chapter twenty two when lighthouses are dark by ethel c brill this librivox recording is in the public domain twenty two hardships the castaways were more comfortable in some ways in the lighthouse than they had been in the cabin though the situation was more exposed the house itself was warmer it was amazing though how much fuel it took to keep the fires going in two stoves and a fireplace "'and how much wood-cutting the boys had to do. "'They could use their snowshoes, but little in the thick woods, "'and floundering around in the snow, "'carrying or dragging logs to the sled, "'was even harder than the actual axe-work. "'Fishing through the ice, though not such hard work physically, "'was becoming decidedly monotonous, too. "'It was necessary, however, for them to catch as many fish as possible, "'as their stores were rapidly diminishing.' some of their supplies had been lost in the fire, and at least half of the vegetables and many of the canned goods they had saved from the flames were spoiled by freezing. The squirrels had carried away part of the beans and peas, and the mysterious thief had helped himself to meat, dried fruit and sugar, besides destroying a quantity of flour and meal. The young folks' appetites were hearty, and it was astonishing how fast their food supplies disappeared— so a part of each day was devoted to watching for the little flags to rise and indicate a bite. The bitter wind swept the ice, and the work was often discouraging, when, as happened all too frequently, hours were spent in this way without a fish to show for all their discomfort. Margaret's tasks were even more monotonous than the boys' work, for, whatever happened, they must eat three times a day. It was cook and wash dishes and wash and iron and mend their clothes most of the time for her. What spare time she had she spent in knitting. She had completed mittens, caps, and one pair of stockings each for all of them, before the boys made their last trip to the other harbor, and after making another pair of stockings all around, she set to work to knit mufflers. The few books had been burned in the cabin, with the exception of three—a novel— a work on geology, and a book of travels that the boys had found when poking around in the charred remains. Though scorched and blackened, the three books were still readable, and they read them over and over again until they fairly knew them by heart. Larry said he was even tempted to try reading them backwards. The lads had made a new checkerboard and a set of chessmen, so crudely carved that the players had some difficulty telling kings from bishops and knights from pawns. It was often a problem to find amusements that would serve for relaxation on stormy days and in the evenings, when they were not tired enough to go to bed immediately after the evening meal. Looking off across the snow-covered woods and the desolate waste of frozen lake made them feel so lonely and forsaken that they seldom climbed the tower stairs. Often they discussed the possibility of crossing to the mainland on the ice, but they always came to the conclusion that, as long as they were fairly comfortable where they were, the risk of such an attempt was too great. There was seldom a day when they could not see somewhere what appeared to be open water. Of course, their view was out over the wide stretch of lake to east and southeast. It was possible that the ice might extend clear across from the northwest shore of the island to the mainland. But even if the ice was firm, to reach civilization they must travel at least fifty miles, "'exposed to the bitter cold and in constant danger of a change of weather "'that might bring blinding snow or fog. "'Occasionally in the evening, Margaret and the boys climbed to the platform "'for a good view of the northern lights. "'Sometimes the lights were all of one color, white, pale green or faintly rosy. "'Now almost stationary, again shooting up in columns and breaking out and spreading rays.' On other nights they filled the whole northern sky with wavering, many-colored flames, fading away in one place only to flash out in another. The Elliots often wondered if, somewhere in the far north, their Uncle Frank was watching the Aurora Borealis too. He was the only near-relative they had left, and it was nearly two years now since they had seen him, for he had gone north with an Arctic exploring expedition." Meg remembered his telling her once that some of the northern Indians believed the dancing rays to be the spirits of their dead friends, while others said the lights were far away in the land of the giants, and came from the wavering torches carried by those great and dreadful beings at their nightly fishing. As yet, the young people were not really suffering, but they were finding their life far harder than they had dreamed it would be as the days of work and loneliness, of cold and isolation, of anxiety in regard to supplies, and never-ceasing effort to keep warm and comfortable, went by, they awoke to a full realization of their situation. Of course, there was nothing to do but make the best of things, and they tried to keep cheerful and not to complain, but they did not always succeed by any means." They were cross and sharp at times, especially when they were tired, they fretted when little things went wrong, were inclined to find fault with one another, to argue about petty things, and to grow excited over the arguments. As the days went on, these habits grew. In fact, they were getting too much of one another's society. Jack was the best-natured of the four, but even he was fussy and cranky too often. Finally, on the last day of January, their irritability, which had been growing for a month, came to a head one evening in a general quarrel. Some little thing of no consequence started the trouble, and they fell to arguing and then to quarreling. Jack was impertinent, and Ralph boxed his ears and sent him to bed. Margaret flared up and took Jack's part. Ralph said unpleasant things in reply— LARRY INTERFERED, AND MEG BOLTED FROM THE ROOM IN TEARS. THEN LARRY AND RALPH HAD IT OUT, EACH GROWING ANGRIER AND MORE UNREASONABLE EVERY MOMENT, UNTIL LARRY SAID HE HAD TAKEN ALL HE COULD STAND, AND THAT THEY MUST GO OUT IN THE SNOW NEXT MORNING AND FIGHT IT OUT. RALPH AGREED, AND THEY DROPPED THEIR DISPUTE, AND BOTH WENT TO BED IN SULLEN SILENCE. RALPH WAS SO ANGRY HE COULD NOT SLEEP, BUT AS HE LAY THERE HE BEGAN TO COOL OFF there came to his mind a story his Uncle Frank had told him about two men who wintered together in the Arctic, fell to arguing, then to quarreling, went crazy, and fought till one was dead and the other so badly hurt that he froze to death. That story took hold of the boy's imagination. "'That's what we'll be coming to if we don't stop this scrapping,' he thought. "'We've got to stop it. There are a couple of months of this thing before us yet.' We must call a halt on ourselves, and I'm the worst one of the lot. He lay awake for a long time and thought the thing out. It was Larry's turn next morning to make the fires, but Ralph slipped out of bed early and had them all going before the older boy got up. When he came into the kitchen, he looked at Ralph rather sheepishly. I thought it was my turn to get up first, he said hesitatingly. It was, but I happened to wake, so I thought... "'See here, Larry, I was to blame last night, and I'm sorry. "'I don't want to fight, do you?' "'No,' the other answered, flushing. "'You weren't any more to blame than I was. "'Let's call it all off.' "'Agreed. "'We've all been making idiots of ourselves, and I've been thinking. "'We've got to quit it, or we'll all go crazy before the next two months are up.' "'That's just what I think. "'I don't know what's been the matter with me lately.' BUT I THINK I CAN BEHAVE MYSELF IF I TRY HARD ENOUGH." JUST THEN, MARGARET CAME IN, AND A LITTLE LATER, JACK. NEITHER OF THEM SAID ANYTHING ABOUT THE NIGHT BEFORE. WHEN BREAKFAST WAS OVER, RALPH PLACED THE MATTER BEFORE THEM ALL. MEG SAID SHE HAD BEEN THINKING ABOUT IT TOO. THEY TALKED IT OVER AND AGREED TO TRY TO BE LESS IMPATIENT. TO HELP THEM TO SELF-CONTROL, THEY DECIDED TO LAY PENALTIES FOR ILL-TEMPER when they were cross or cranky larry and ralph agreed to chop wood for half an hour as punishment jack to shovel snow and margaret to scour the pots and pans the work she hated most after their resolution to behave themselves things went better for a while for they tried harder to make the best of what could not be helped the food supply was beginning to run alarmingly low the stock of salt meat would not last until spring unless fish and game were obtained to eke it out. But fishing was yielding almost nothing, although the boys cut holes in all sorts of places, even going a mile or more out on the lake. It seemed to them that perhaps hunting might be more successful, so they began to frequent the woods, following the hare and squirrel tracks, and laying in wait in bushes and thickets. Of course it was easy to tell the dainty little pairs of footprints, ending abruptly at a tree, or at a hole in the snow where the squirrel had sought for some of his buried stores, or had run through a tunnel in the snow to another tree from the larger bunched tracks of a hare. A hare's tracks do not resemble those of any other animal, except for his short-eared first cousin, the rabbit. The first time Ralph went hunting, he found plenty of tracks, but the only thing he succeeded in bagging was one squirrel. He followed one hare trail for some time, noticing from the prints in the snow where the animal had crouched to browse a birch shoot or a bit of tender bark, or had sat up on its haunches for a moment to take an observation, leaving the mark of its little bunch of a tail. He could easily imagine the hare, ears up, bulging eyes looking behind as well as before, and nose wrinkled to catch a new or dangerous scent. The trail ended abruptly in a bush, where there were plain signs of a scuffle. In the snow, with the marks of the animal's body and paws, were distinctly printed X's, the marks of big claws. Some large bird had not only killed but carried off the hare. Later, as Ralph was going home in the dusk, he heard the long-drawn hoot of an owl. "'There's the fellow that got the hare,' he thought that's his haunting cry. I should think such a racket as that would scare the game all away. I'm afraid we'll have to set some snares, he said, when he was displaying his lone squirrel to Meg and Larry. There are plenty of tracks, but it's hard to get a glimpse of a hare. We're not out of meat yet, Lawrence replied. Let's not take to trapping till we have to, "'I don't so much mind shooting a hare, "'though I should never do it for pleasure. "'I would rather hunt with a camera. "'But I hate traps. "'They're such cruel, unsportsmanlike things. "'Did you ever see a rabbit in a snare?' "'No. "'Well, I have, hanging by its neck in a noose, "'its tongue sticking out and its eyes bulging. "'I've never wanted to trap anything since. "'Shooting is over in a minute,' "'but I'd hate to torture my game by hanging it. "'I hadn't thought of it that way,' Ralph answered, "'but I guess I agree with you. "'We won't try snaring till we have to at any rate.' "'That night there was a light snow, "'and when Larry went into the woods two days later, "'he was surprised to see how few hair tracks were to be found. "'Squirrels were still plentiful, "'and he succeeded in getting three. "'Then the squirrels seemed to disappear.' SEVERAL TIMES LAWRENCE OR RALPH WENT HUNTING, BUT NOT AN ANIMAL OF ANY KIND DID THEY COME ACROSS. THEY SAW A NEW TRAIL THAT PUZZLED THEM. THE PRINTS WERE LIKE THE CAT TRACKS THEY HAD SEEN AROUND THE BURNED HOUSE, BUT LARGER. THE MARK LEFT BY A WOLF'S FOOT IS A GOOD DEAL LIKE THAT OF A DOG, BUT THESE TRACKS WERE MORE LIKE THOSE OF A CAT, ONLY MUCH BIGGER AND FARTHER APART. Evidently, some new beast was frequenting the neighborhood. End of chapter 22